Today we have Mim, author of The Prison Teacher. Very highly rated on Amazon, almost five stars, and well worth a read. It was formerly called Jailbirds. So this channel started out as a prison channel with prison stories that I experienced and then interviewing people who'd been in prison. Then we moved over to interviewing ex-cops, ex-guards, um, victims of crime, but we've never interviewed a prison teacher. So this is the very first prison teacher interview. So thanks for coming on, Mim. Well, thanks for having me. I'm pleased to be your first prison teacher. <laughs> you um, sent me a list of stories this morning that you said were like anecdotes. Out of all of those anecdotes, which one would you say is like the funniest or the most engaging? Uh, I love the one about huskies, not buskies, which I will have to explain. <laughs> Should I just crack in and go for it? Go for it. So there's uh, an IBS medication called buscapan. Uh, and if you are somebody who has not been to a specific few jails, you'll be like, why is that relevant? And it's something that you used to get in the rattle pack. So if you come into the jail and you're addicted to heroin, you'll need a few things of medication to kind of get you through. So our rattle packs in the jail had everything from colouring books to keep you busy to, you know, aspirin. And one of those things was IBS, which was meant to kind of help with the cramps. So irritable bowel syndrome medication. Is that what you're talking oh, about? Oh, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So picture you sort of got your stomach cramps, you take your IBS medication, Buscapan. And uh, there was this time in the jail where the healthcare department were saying, God, it's so funny. A lot of people get an IBS these days. It's absolute <laughs> IBS running through this jail. And uh, what we worked out had happened is that someone had their rattle pack, they were on the mm. induction wing, and they were kind of trying to smoke each thing to see what would help them kind of check out the situation for a while. And one of those things that... Uh, not a great idea, I have to add. <laughs> but if you had it in combination with certain antidepressants or certainly antipsychotics, oh. uh, it kind of replicated a high that was similar to heroin. So a kind of gouching, a kind of, yeah, a slightly, uh, you know, take you out of your brain for a bit. Anyway, so once this <laughs> got to be known... It sort of spread for the jail, so everyone's going, oh, I think my digestion's a bit off. I'm going to have to go and get some IBS medication. But the thing is about it is it's like six for a pound. So you can go to Poundland, get your six for a pound, and the markup is obviously like five quid a tablet. But also if you got caught with them, then essentially you're just smuggling aspirin. Like, there's not, you can't get extra days in your sentence. Like, sure, you can get, like, your, your kind of privileges taken away or go down one of these levels, but you couldn't kind of get extra time in your sentence or anything like that. So um, it became the entrepreneur's drug of choice because obviously the risk was pretty low and the profits were pretty high. Um, and so developed this this kind of um, epidemic of um, buskies and people got called busky crumbs if they had it. <laughs> or uh, the slightly less flattering shit tablet junkies, <laughs> which was, uh, yeah, not quite as glamorous. Anyway, so buscapan being smoked and it kind of smelled a bit like candy floss. It had this really sweet <laughs> smell and they just couldn't do anything about it because they kind of stopped giving people that medication for IBS, obviously, but it was absolutely rife because people were kind of smuggling in these tablets and the little um, and the little capsules in the middle of a kinder egg, you know, those little plastic yeah. ones that sometimes people use. So people were, particularly in the women's estate, you've got, um, you've got some greater space for uh, 
storage <laughs> on your way in the prison and there were lots and lots of people going in and out so in women's prisons more than men's people are on really short sentences well in the UK anyway so people were kind of bringing in these kinder eggs full of the buskies and you couldn't do a lot about it because it you know it wasn't not a criminal offence it's, it's just an over-the-counter drug and so they introduced these fans in the corridor. So if you if you started to smell the candy floss, like this fan would go off and blow it down. But I mean, that was really all they could do. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of the phrase, pugs, not drugs. People used to wear it on T-shirts. Pugs, not drugs. <laughs> yeah, people used to wear these like, it was like a kind of like comedy, you know, thing that gets said to teens, like talk to Frank, pugs, not drugs. Yeah. And uh, they used to wear these T-shirts with little pug dogs on and Aww. saying pugs, not drugs. Is this kind of cheesy anti-drugs message and uh we ran this little entrepreneurship course in the prison so we ran loads Mm. of different projects everything from the prison choir to the pantomime and one of the courses we ran was um starting little businesses and the business was about people making these greetings cards and Mm. you know so people could send them out to the family and selling them on the wings and uh they had for years made these sort of like pugs not drugs on little dogs on the front (laughs) And uh, someone got the idea that we were going to do a, a very localised version that no one outside the prison would ever understand uh, called a Huskies Not Buskies series, <laughs> which had a little picture of a husky surrounded by a halo of glitter <laughs> and said Huskies Not Buskies. And uh, because Buskerman was like such a big problem in the jail at that time, similar to kind of Spice in some of the male estates I was in, they... Uh, were extremely popular. So these cards, as soon as they got put on the catalogue, we had like orders streaming <laughs> in, we were like ramping up production. And then um, I got a call when they came out and uh, was called into the office, not first time, not the last, uh, and told that I was contributing to the cult status of the drug. And the, they asked us to destroy all of the copies of the Huskies, not Buskies glitter card that had been produced because we were contributing uh, to the problem. And so we had to go back to the classroom. Um, and the women had spent ages, I thought these, they thought these cards were like brilliant. They'd spent ages making them and I had to go back and say, guys, we've actually, they're all contraband. We've got to destroy the lot. And uh, yeah, cut them up. I mean, of course we didn't. They came, they went home in lots of people's pockets and I think unofficially fetched much, much higher prices than they would have done. Wow. So that's a funny story then from your many stories. What is like a memorable dark story then? God, you know, there was so, so many of them. Um, I think the, the hardest day in the prison was uh, that I can remember was when uh, there was a woman that was in our classroom and she had she was pregnant and she was for a really long time working with social services like getting drug rehabilitation courses trying to get to a stage where she would be able to go to a mother and baby unit and they kept on saying oh you know do this one more course you'll get to the mother and baby unit you know if you work hard on this you work hard on this so she was like you know coming along to the sessions, working really hard on those. And one of the things I just think is so cruel and really dehumanising about the prison system is that information is withheld from people. So the biggest one is when people are being released and in the even days before the release, they'll have no idea if they've got accommodation or not. And have no, you know, they'll be sending these apps, these kind of information applications out into really just like the atmosphere, not being able to find out and not knowing who to ask. 
And it was the same with her. They they weren't giving her the information. Mm. And I remember she went out to hospital to have the baby. And at this point, we thought, oh, she might be able to keep the baby and go to a mother and baby unit. And she came back a few days without the baby. And it had been taken off her at the hospital. And um, she committed suicide that oh, night. Dear. Yeah, and I just this, this oh, day dear. where we'd been talking a few days before about what the baby name was going to be and you know, what, what she'd do when she got out. And I remember just coming into this bit of A4 taped on the door, just saying, this person died overnight. Mm. And just like, yeah, how horrific that was. Yeah. Was that like an overdose on pills or something? No, she hung herself. Oh dear. Yeah. To be working with people and one minute there, one minute they're gone, that must be absolutely like, it must have given you PTSD by the end of it, did it, if there was a lot of this? No. Do you know, I had to really, I mean, I had counselling while I was there. I'm a big fan yeah. of counselling. I think we, should, we could all do with a bit. But, um, yeah, I guess you teaching in the atmosphere is nothing, nothing close to, to being in it day and night. And, mm. you know, you can kind of come away and, and be out of that as well. All right, let's do a bit of your background then to see what led to you choosing this occupation like, what were you interested in school? Did you think, I know I'm going to be a prison worker? <laughs> Do you know, it does seem, yeah, I don't know you anyone did. else. <laughs> you did. I thought I was going to be a Blue Peter presenter. <laughs> I thought I was going to be Katie Hill. No, no. Do you know, it is a real kind of, yeah, I know no one else who's, who's gone to work in the prison service. I'd... When I went on, it was my first job. I'd freshly graduated from Durham University. I was doing politics and philosophy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it, basically, we were living in this really alternative way. We were living in a, you almost call it a commune, but kind of like intentional community house. And um, one of the things we did in that house, there was like all sorts, community meals. And we were quite hippies as well. We used mm. to go and bin rained at the supermarkets and get all the food <laughs> that would otherwise be wasted and like feed it to people mm. and uh, one of the things we did is that we we share rooms with our housemates and then we had space open for people who needed emergency accommodation and before then I'd never ever come across people who'd been involved in the criminal justice system been caught up in it and that was the first time where people were staying at our house and were telling me experiences of what happened in prison and I remember some people coming who were really really vulnerable these you know a woman who had really poor mental health and thinking and had come from a care background had a really rough time and thinking it's, it's prison where we're going to put this person this seems mad for like shoplifting and things like that like all this survival crime just thinking I can't believe that is genuinely where we're putting people as the best solution like there must be it's inefficient I'm not even not just for her, but as a system, you know, like that's not going to help us get out of those cycles, is it? And um, yeah, that just that just led me in to getting to know many more people who'd who'd been through that system. And I was at a church where people had uh, come from a prison background or had been in and out, and yeah, it just got really to be on my radar, and I kind of hmm. went in from that angle. So these people, then, I assume who you helped to house had addiction issues some of them yeah and what did how did what was your like attitude towards drugs and addiction at that point of your life oh that's a good question 
I think I've learned so much more now. I mean, I was really, really green. I was a bit of, I used to get called a bit of a save the world Sophie, you know, <laughs> sort of like a green eyed hippie, like, oh, we're going to, you know, do all these good things. And, you know, I was probably really unrealistic as well. So, I mean, looking back, probably not all of the things we did were 100% safe and wholesome <laughs> <laughs> I think oh there's a good reason I wasn't telling my granny what was happening <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, so I hadn't come across addiction really much at all so I had a kind of real lack of understanding of it and particularly how it linked to trauma I guess I just thought alright mate why don't you just stop why just not do it <laughs> but uh, yeah I've, I've, I've learned a lot in, in the kind of eight years since I can then, imagine I so you said you did Politics and philosophy? Mm, yeah. Did you enjoy that? Don't think I've ever used it. You've never used it? <laughs> I can't think of a single time where I've used a bit from that degree. What no, motivates you to do that degree then? Do you know, I think it was just the next uh, the next kind of thing on, on the path, on the conveyor belt. You just had to pick a subject you were right at A level and it was the next kind of step on that path. There wasn't any philosophers who like really interested you or anything. Oh, I'd love to give you that answer. <laughs> it's so much more of a clever answer, probably no. I was I was really engaged in politics actually, and, yeah. and kind of system change. And I tell you what, that did mm. was really helpful when I was in the prison system because I think sometimes when you are in a system, things are how they are, and it's kind of like this is how it works. And I think that study taught me to be like, what? should it work like this this seems like totally rubbish as a system like really badly designed so I guess it helped me to kind of stay critical and ask those questions yeah all right so you finished uni and you said you were what uni was it sorry uh Durham I think my sister went to that one did you stay there or did you move I've stayed there so I'm still based in Chesley Street now which is near Newcastle okay so did you decide then that you were going to apply for jobs in prisons right away? Do you know, one one just came up um, with an organisation that uh, somebody that I knew who'd been to prison was also involved in. I think they said to me, oh, there's this, this job coming up. And it was to teach. I was a teacher of kind of art, but it was a personal development course. So basically people who they were struggling to get to, go along to things so it might be if you're really new into prison and kind of a bit shell-shocked like we were the introductory course or it might be people were having really severe mental health problems and they couldn't you know sit in a kitchen or a classroom so our job was to kind of get people who were on the edges of that system and sort of find ways to engage people what ways did you use Oh, yeah, loads of stuff. And um, my absolute favourite thing the whole time we were there um, was we started a prison choir, which did what I can only describe as the most perfect three-part harmonies on TLC's No Scrubs that I've ever heard in my life before or since. Um, but we also did, like, you know, an annual panto, so which we wrote as well. So we did Snow White and the Seven Co-Accused. And the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, we had the most fantastic dwarves. They were again. It sort of links into so much of this like prison language. But our dwarves were busky, the busky crumb, and then we had um, detty grass, uh, pad thief. You know, pads are where people talk about cells. Um, and yeah, what else did we do? Kind of lots of yeah, painting, drawing, sewing. We had some really great pun courses. A stitch in time where you explored your life journey through sewing. <laughs> it got pretty niche. 
Did you ever work with the Cursor Trust? Yeah, yeah, we I did. I worked with them. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, they're great people, aren't they? Yeah, in fact, yeah. Some, there's some really cool bits of artwork that we ended up doing. My, my favourite that we ever exhibited was um, I got people to do a papier-mâché sculpture I mean, some days you're scraping the barrel here. You do have people full-time every day for three weeks. Um, a paper mache sculpture of, of something that represented how they were feeling. And I, my absolute favourite piece was a life-size bust of one of the officers. Who <laughs> <laughs> just nicked somebody who sort of, um, yeah, put someone in punishment for, for something. And... Uh, we still have the life-size bust <laughs> with sort of <laughs> knitted hair of this officer. So if you were watching this, the Curse of Trust are based out of London, near the prison down there. Is it Scrubs, the prison down in London? Yeah. Yeah. And um, they help prisoners rehabilitate through art. If you were looking to, you know, donate or help a prison charity or volunteer to work for them, I highly recommend the Curse of Trust. They're on Duquesne Road in London, and uh, they helped me. They put me on their mentor program, which helped me get my book up to scratch, whereby I could attract an agent and get published and everything else. So absolutely fantastic people. And prisoners abroad also out of London, there. Um, they helped me too when, when I was incarcerated. So can't speak highly enough of both of those charities and the important work that they do. All right then, so did you start in a men's or women's prison? No, I was pretty much women's the whole time. I did maybe a couple of months overall in men's and young offenders, but yeah, mostly women. So you see like movies and videos that show prison with riots and hostage situations and people getting stabbed. Were you apprehensive about working in that environment? Do you know, I was going into the men's. I think with the women, because I knew women that had been in there in the community, that didn't feel like a massive barrier. It was a shock going from the women's to the men's, partly because it's so much smaller. Obviously, only 5% of prisons in the UK are women. So they're much, much smaller prisons. There are fewer of them. Going from the women's prison where I was to Northumberland, which is like, <laughs> a you know, one of these kind of privatised prisons run by a big company, absolutely massive now that was a shock. <laughs> I remember on my first day, they just didn't have enough people to unlock them. So I was like, is my class going to get here anytime soon? <laughs> and they just hadn't been unlocked. And then during that course, one of the guys uh, who was doing the poetry session got their ear cut off over a spice debt. They're like, he won't be coming today. He's had his ear cut off. <laughs> Bloody hell, this is not how they do it in the women's prison. Wow. So yeah, it was so a really different that sent a few shivers, did it? Hearing the ear cut, get cut off. Yeah, although I think what people don't see about prisons as much in the kind of TV content is um, almost how like mundane it is. It's always, you know, watching like Orange is the New Black or Wentworth or those kind of things. You see this it's constant <laughs> drama and I'm like, there was a lot of people sitting behind the door watching telly that just doesn't make very good content. Yeah, it's boring, isn't it, mostly? Nothing happening, passing the time. All right, so um, you did poetry, rap writing and... Um, did any of the people that you helped win Kersler Awards? Oh, we actually <laughs> did win quite a few. <laughs> Thanks for mentioning it. 
Uh, yeah, well, I was the judge some years. What years was oh. this? <laughs> um, what years? To be honest, they actually still do win something almost yeah. every year. Um, but there were some really good, uh, really good poetry ones that won. I want to say. 2016, 2017, we had a lot of winners. Mm. Some really, particularly that prison does. That's really when I was ones. judging, I think. Oh, well, thanks for picking us. <laughs> we did some really cool, like, I was judging the, the writing. Oh, actually, yeah, yeah we did have a few. Yeah. Did you? Yeah, we See? certainly got some commendations. So wow. Thanks for that. <laughs> All right, then let's go back to the dark side then. You mentioned about an ear getting cut off. So what was your experience of prisoners self-harming? Yeah, that in women's prisons particularly is just an absolutely huge problem. I mean, in 78% of people, I think it is, come in with a diagnosed mental health problem, which is just so much more than the average population. So it just became so... It was almost a really, really completely normal occurrence even the way it was talked about you know or when you're in a system like that it's, you, there's some language around it that is almost like so matter of fact mm. oh yeah we've had a couple of slash ups on this wing and and this person's um oh on four obs an hour and you're just like oh my gosh but when it's your every day if you do have this like almost business-like language around it it's kind of a weird yeah, a really weird bubble to be in. I mean, to, to work in, but, I, you know, even more so to live in. Did you get desensitised then? Like the language is part of the desensitisation, isn't it? Yeah, I think probably, yeah. Mm. Or like even like the stories with trauma being really normalised. Like I remember in a group and we were chatting about, uh, I remember the girls saying, oh, no, it's... um." It wasn't rape, it's just that I was asleep when it happened. And oh, oh, you know, the thing is, oh, you know, I brought it on myself because I'd taken this drug. And everyone, and I was just thinking, like, we're talking. And just every single day, really, really traumatic things were talked about, like kind of chit chat around the coffee maker. And I think that is complete, that is something about working in a women's prison that really stood out. It's like, these levels of trauma that were really part of normal experience in a way that if I just brought that conversation outside the gate and talked about with my friends, everyone would be like, oh my gosh, we need to call the police right now. Yeah. Which ties into what we've been talking about on this channel for a while, how there's a trajectory from child abuse into criminality because the trauma's not, they're not given anything to deal with it. Mm. So the men, men and women end up on drugs as to self-medicate Heroin is the dominant one because it puts them so out of it. And then the criminality to finance that, the men go into like drug dealing or stealing, robberies, and the women often go into sex work. Mm. So did you find that from your experience, that trajectory? Yeah, oh, 100%. I mean, it's it's even more stark, I think, in the female estate where a third of people are coming from background of being in the care system. And that is stark. I mean, we're doing something really wrong. I think it's so comfortable for people to say, 
oh, we're the good ones outside of prison and the people in prison are the bad ones. <laughs> it's like this nice little light and dark, good and bad. Mm. And that is very comforting because we get to put ourselves in the little good category, don't we? And actually what is much less comfortable to be confronted with is the fact that a third of people that are in the care of the state, a third of people in prison have, have, have come from the care of the state. And I think that there's a lot to be dealt with there about what we're all doing wrong. And that kind of smashes apart that idea that you have kind of bad people and good people. And particularly with women, I think it's 48% of women in prison have committed a crime on behalf of a man. Mm. And so much of that is people with male partners who might be soliciting or shoplifting on behalf of them and a male partner, really often coercive. There's so much domestic violence, again, that became really, really normal in terms of what people talked about. And... uh, yeah, absolutely. There's that there's that route from from trauma to addiction and criminality. And so again, the big thing about women's prisons is that most women in prison have been victims of a greater crime than the one they've committed. And when you start to think about that, and then you get these people saying, you know, if you didn't do the like the time, don't do the crime, and talking about it as a deterrent, you think, oh my gosh, that's not going to work. <laughs> it's just not going to work. So we feel, a lot of us feel um, on the channel, who support the channel, that there's been a misallocation of resources. So governments around the world have spent trillions on this war on drugs that hasn't fixed the war on... There's more drugs available than ever right now. It's stronger than ever, etc. Versus taking those resources and going after predators, people who do harm, kids in care homes and things like that, going at the root cause before all this criminality and the trauma and incarceration happens. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I'm 100% there with you. I also think that none of that is rocket science. Every single person working in looking, researching the criminal justice system comes out with the same conclusion that we're addressing it really wrongly we're spending money in the wrong way if we we look have you read um incarceration nation no i've seen it but i've not read it i think it's baz dreisinger she um dr baz dreisinger she profiles prisons around the world and the ones that work the absolute worst are the ones that kind of focus on you know we need to have really hard punishment like american prisons their rates of reoffending absolute sky high but the ones who you know scandinavia has loads of examples say okay let's look at why the crime's going on here and try and address some of that have much lower offending rates i think it's a really like um good capped phrase isn't it like hard on crime and you think yeah all right but (laughs) all of the research tells you like I want more. Cri- I want less crime. You want less crime. The people doing the crime want less crime. They want other things to live for. Like, it's not rocket science. So they think that by locking drug offenders up, they're going to get more votes. This has been the model since Nixon. And if they like legalize and decriminalize, they'll lose votes. That's what they think. But look at like Portugal, Holland, Scandinavia, which has a more pragmatic and sensible approach. They've got the lowest reoffending recidivism in the world but we're following the american model but the contracts are in the tens of billions a year right now for private prisons alone and then you've got all the other contractors around it there's hundreds of them so there's all this money for the status quo like you've got prison guards unions 
putting money up in America to keep three strikes laws in place, things like that. It's it's absolutely sickening. Yeah, but let, let, let's let's get off my soapbox and get back to your story. <laughs> oh, we're all on the same soapbox. <laughs> I'm joining you on it. <laughs> did we do the Snow White one yet? Oh, oh yeah, we did. We talked about the dwarves, didn't we? Okay, so the, uh... employment program, bourbons. Oh yeah, the empowerment program. Empowerment oh, program. this one was such a wake <laughs> So particularly in women's prisons, there is this little tug of war that goes on because there's the kind of really you know the old school big on hierarchy call everyone sir use the surnames and then there are kind of you know these kind of hippie types like me who come in and say actually if we look at the research we really should be doing more rehabilitation and there's this kind of funny dynamic that happens between them and uh Sometimes this comes out in terms of uh, people saying, oh, we should launch a new programme. And people worked out that prison was disempowering. And that actually didn't help people in the long term. <laughs> Again, not rocket science. Um, and that if we wanted people to kind of live really full lives after prison, then we needed to empower them to be able to do other things, you know, give people more skills. And so they started this kind of, you know, one of these endless committees, like these sort of like empowerment groups where you got to, uh, you know, have a bit more ownership over your own space and make some more decisions. And so they kind of got this group together and everyone decided what they wanted to change. And part of it was about changing your environment, having some control over your environment. Because one of the things that they do that takes away people's power is, is completely take control away, you know, around communication or what you want to do, what you want to study. And, um, this group had got together and uh, they decided they wanted to make the segregation unit a little bit um, brighter because it was quite a depressing looking place by painting the walls of this like yard. Anyway, so this kind of design was happened upon. We went round the wings and like chatted to lots of different people about what they wanted to do and we decided we're doing Under the Sea mural (laughs) which you love or don't love but that was what was decided as part of the uh empowering people to control their own environments it's fine anyway and there was an amazing mural this (laughs) my absolute favorite part so we didn't under the sea it was a sea and then people drew different things on it like painted them on and uh, there was this sort of crab that floated in the middle of the sea like this. <laughs> it's just such a great crab. And uh, the, the, the guards in the seg called it the, the orange spider. <laughs> it's all about, almost had too many legs. Anyway, and we were working on this and the idea was that it was community mural. So you'd go in and you'd, you'd add a fish or you'd add a sea animal and then it would like represent different people from the community. So anyway, we worked on this for absolute weeks um, as part of this empowerment initiative to, to you know, decide something about your own space. And uh, I suddenly got a call one day from, oh, if you, uh, you run the painting thing, don't you? And I was like, yeah, yeah, we've got some painters. And they're like, great, we're just looking for some people to paint the seg. I was like, yeah, no, we're already painting the seg. That's us. We're doing the we're painting the seg. <laughs> and they were like, no, no, it, we're painting over. The seg? I was like, no, no, we have, we're not painting over the seg. We've just done it. We've literally just we've just put that on. So we're not painting over it. They're like, yeah, I think that's the message. I was like, you must have got it wrong. We, we're we painting it now. Anyway, it turns out the governor had gone in and said, why is the fish on the walls? And basically cancelled the empowerment initiative. And uh, having spent, I'm not kidding, weeks and weeks and weeks getting permission to do this thing, 
within a week he had guys in and painted over the whole lot. And it just struck me as the most like, just the picture, the summary of this kind of tug of war between the different approaches in prisons because we'd spent weeks and weeks going on this empowerment initiative and he was asking the same women <laughs> to paint over it. I was like, well, you, you can... I don't have a choice about you doing that. I'm a teacher, but you're definitely not using my group to do it. But yeah, it was, uh, was, was gone within a couple of weeks. So it was... I mean, anyone who has worked in that kind of job and navigated the different opinions and priorities that are in that space will know how frustrating it is. I do a kind of similar job at the community now and it's just so easy. Mm-hmm. I remember, it's funny, when the new governor came, we had an amazing new governor who replaced Governor Paintover. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I remember hearing about it before she came, oh, I don't know about this governor. People say she's like for the women. And what they meant there is like, not for the staff and she was either for the staff or for the women or oh, I've heard she's for the women I'm thinking yeah I hope she bled years she's a governor <laughs> of a prison like <laughs> we're meant to be rehabilitating people but yeah it's a, it's a mad space what about the bourbons oh the bourbons yeah, yeah. a bourbon biscuit if you're someone who listens <laughs> from the states is like a um, I reckon is it's is the closest comparison an Oreo yeah maybe yeah so this again is a really like one of those stories about being in in that space. <laughs> like, wow, this is crazy. So on a Friday, if our sessions had gone well and people had like worked really hard on them, we used to bring in like a packet of uh, a bourbon biscuits and just like give everyone a bourbon biscuit. But there'd been a rule that went round. Google it. Yeah. <laughs> a bourbon biscuit. <laughs> there'd been a rule that went round where. Uh, people were not allowed a drink and a biscuit mid-morning in the session because we were replicating a normal workplace. I'm like, I've never been in a workplace where you're not allowed a bourbon biscuit mid-morning. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're definitely not replicating a workplace. Anyway, so we brought in these biscuits and apparently one of the officers and the guards had seen it through a window. And... Uh, we, uh, one of the girls had said, oh, yeah, I'm going to bring some as well because the teacher brought them last week, sort of dobbing us in it without realising. <laughs> and we got four officers march into the room and be like, who's been providing the biscuits? And we're like, don't know. He's <laughs> like shuffling papers over the biscuits, covering them up. And my favourite thing about that story is it, we sort of, you know, were slapped on the wrist for it. But my favourite thing about the story is for the next few weeks whenever me and this other teacher walk down the corridor someone will go oi oi the ball bomb bandits <laughs> <laughs> which is so funny because I mean we were like such law abiding you know we're like the absolute last ones who would smuggle a phone or get some pills in but we were yeah labelled the sort of risk for our ball bomb biscuits so yesterday I interviewed a prison guard who got asked to bring a phone in Oh, yeah. And he said yes, and then it led to phones and drugs, and then he gets arrested and ends up in prison. Oh, my gosh. Did the prisoners ever try and pressure you to bring anything in? No, do you know, never. And I think that's partly because we were with the chaplaincy as well, so I did a session with the chaplaincy each week, and I think they just thought we were the kind of <laughs> squeaky clean ones. So they could yeah. tap us for a biscuit, but definitely not some crack. Good. <laughs> 
So, next one was craft material stolen. Ah, oh, yeah. I love telling stories about this because one of the things that I uh, think when we kind of tell stories about prison is we either focus on people being the kind of vulnerable or the villain. And that's a kind of overused word about prison, isn't it? Like people are really vulnerable. And actually, it's like, well, I don't know if we can paint everyone in that or this kind of victim. But then also, there's a lot of like villainy there as well. And actually, <laughs> most people are just put in a set of circumstances and make a few decisions. You know, it's it's not quite as black and white as this victim or villain thing. Um, and so I loved when we were in there just seeing people's kind of resourcefulness and how entrepreneurial they are. I mean, you must know. So much wasted talent in prison. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, so yeah. much. And friends who've left now have started these like amazing businesses and projects and you think, you're a good entrepreneur. <laughs> That's partly why you got into that. <laughs> and um, so there were just so many times where, you know, our eyeliner, our sort of colouring pencils would go missing and be like sold on for eyeliner or the J cloths. They had a kind of fashion for them being these curtain tie backs. So our cleaning cupboard had these like J cloths gone. You go into people's room, they'd be like made into these bows tying the curtains back or, <laughs> or kind of fabric nicked or, or paper sold on or whatever. And sometimes during the pat down when people left the classroom, you'd see a full, like an A4 bulge in the front. I'm like, you could have tried with a couple of bits of card, not a, the whole pack of 100. Like, we're going to find that one. Or, um, oh yeah, people did a lot with the pads and tampons, you know, shredding them up, making little snowscapes. During the Christmas season, I tell you what, Tampax were sponsoring the artistic displays on those wings. It was like shredded up snow, dangling from every window and falling from the ceiling. I went court once and one of my female co-defendants, wild woman, had her, her every colour of the rainbow. I was like, how did you do that? And I think she did some of it out of Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah. Impressive. Yeah, it, looked, it was really impressive. The ju- I don't think That's ju- another level. I don't think the judge was impressed though. She ended up getting kicked out of the courtroom with a boyfriend for horseplay. Westlap. <laughs> All right, so the next one then, homeless on release. Yeah, so this is um, something that uh, I ended up getting quite over-involved with when I was in the prison because you work with people for a really long time, really intensive periods. You know, whether that's somebody going through recovery or spending some time kind of thinking about, you know, where they were before and where they want to be afterwards. And, of course, all of that, kind of means nothing if you don't have a roof over your head when you get out and such a huge number of people I mean actually weirdly over Covid it's been a bit different because people have been given houses so that they're not uh, catching and passing on Covid so it's just done something good um, where people were kind of released to no address and I think it's about 40% 39% of, of women are released to no address I don't know what the stat is for men Um and so there were a couple of times that I've I've written about, but uh, where I'd come across people in town in doorways, and there'd be someone who I'd I'd be teaching the other day, and and you know there was a couple of times oh, where I just think we've you've worked so hard getting to a, a new place, and to be like sent back into that. Well, of course you don't have a choice. Like if you're back in a doorway, like there's absolutely no tools at your disposal to find a new kind of life like 
why are we surprised that reoffending rates happen? So there's just a couple of times where I'd kind of, you know, end up saying, oh, come stay at mine, oh. <laughs> or, or end up so I'm putting God someone in the travel lodge, or, or, or these kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like by design. In America, they give them $50 on the gate and say, have a nice day. Mm. And 90% where I was housed were injecting drugs. So they know right away what's going to happen. They're going to try and get some food or some drugs, run out of the $50, and then st steal and come right back. $60,000 as soon as they come right back. Taxpayers' money per person. Well, they say, don't you? Yeah. It's more... Uh... It's cheaper to go to Eton, which is like the sort of most expensive, you know, private school in the UK. Yeah. However many grand a year. What a racket. I know. Second in. What a racket. We should be getting a bit better service for that much. We should. <laughs> Not dead rats in the food. Absolutely. Giant leaks. Oh, yeah. This was a kind of, you've got to find your fun in that environment. <laughs> and this, um, one of my other sort of soapboxes is, is about food that goes to waste so mm. I uh, run an organisation with some other people where um, we take food that would otherwise go to waste and uh, from you know big giants like Amazon or manufacturers and, and distribute it and run a catering company and all sorts and um, I found out going to the the prison gardens so the, one of the gardeners was a competitive leek grower and um, if I show you the size of the leek I, I'm going to have to show you a photo later because honestly, you would not believe it. The leeks they were growing in those prison gardens were genuinely maybe 20 centimetres in diameter. I mean, they were absolutely giant. I couldn't believe it was a leek when I saw it. Wow. Anyway, so I was, I was chatting one day at the garden, sort of going on a little walk and seeing what they were growing. And then um, they were saying, uh, oh yeah, it's a, it's a shame we'll have to compost these. I was like, are you joking me? This is like a Victorian prison where they got them to move rocks from one side of the garden to the other. I was like, <laughs> these women have spent absolute weeks and months growing these vegetables that you are going to put straight into the bin. What a joke. And the guy was saying, do you know, we used to sell the veg to the staff and it could go out to different things and use for different events or, or the... The women could take them home because actually they weren't allowed to take those vegetables back to the wing as well. That was like a real no-no if people were like taking the veg that was going to go in the bin. <laughs> so um, this gardens department was stopped from doing that. They were stopped from sending the veg out because people felt it was a security risk. Like you kind of, you know, slip some confidential information in between the leek leaves or whatever. <laughs> and uh, so these vegetables just being grown to be composted grown to be composted i just thought that is bleak oh. so i said to, i was i was helping at the soup kitchen at the time i said to the girls right i'm gonna i'm gonna take the leak home i'm gonna i'm gonna go and get that leak i'm gonna take it home so the gardener sort of you know he couldn't give it to me but he said i'll leave it on the side <laughs> <laughs> and so i brought in my rucksack for the day and i remember thinking um i remember thinking I've really underestimated the size of this leak because I've just bought an... I can't bring a hiking rucksack in. What will that look like if I go into work with a hiking rucksack? But the leak's about this size, so I've got the gardener to trim it down. Oh. Anyway, and I shut the zip over it, but quite a lot of the, the sort of leaves got stuck in the zip. No. And once you've broken it, the onion smell no. is in the air. <laughs> I'm there with this, like, rucksack full of it. And then I've got a couple of carrier bags, and the carrier bags are full of, like, onions the size of my head. And I'm, like, desperate to save these leaks. And I remember when I was putting my keys back in the key machine, 
and I set the bag on the floor and this curry bag fell over and I'm like grabbing a rolling <laughs> onion like hoping on the guard seat. And uh, the whole time I was going out through the gate, I mean, dear Lord, I, this is why I'm saying I'm the person who would never, ever be this the drug smuggler into the prison. I could, I was, by the sweat coming off me, smuggling that onion. <laughs> I was like, oh God, I could never, I could never smuggle an actual phone in <laughs> if I can't get this onion out. <laughs> like, my heart going, sweat pouring off, me like stuffing this onion back in the bag, <laughs> like getting this cabbie bag. Anyway, so I did make it out the door, but absolutely smelling like an onion the whole way. And when I got out, honestly, I had to have a sit down. But I was able to kind of take this take this onion and put it into the soup kitchen. I remember getting in the next day and telling the women at the gardens, I was like, somebody ate that leek. You're like, yeah! And you're in this system where there's so much you can't change. Like you're in, even as a kind of low-level staff member, you're in charge of nothing, you know. Even the empowerment project that we got to decide on gets painted over the next week. And so to be like, don't you worry. I've took that leak and I've put it in a soup. You just feel like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you feel like you're taking your power back in the ways you can, you know, like smash the system <laughs> with onions. Did you, did you engage in any other acts of passive resistance? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Not that many. I mean, it's so, to be honest, listening to your podcast in a way here, I thought, pretty tame compared to the average guest. Na- Natalie Welch. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> she arrives at the prison, looks off at the roof and there's armed men and she thinks they're the guards. <laughs> but they're the gang members. <laughs> yeah, Listening to her like on her, on her day release, which we would call that Rutland in the UK, she's like, you know, hijacking a van. I was like, I don't feel that my stories of like when the scanner's broken, I would sometimes take the card out to the car park, take a picture of it on my phone and then send it to my prison email. Like, Rock on. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, the passive resistance was uh, very low level. Although funnily enough, when the um, the MOJ, the Ministry of Justice, has had to kind of vet some of the content of the book before it got published and the kind of things that they queried. They didn't query any of the kind of like identity stuff and the legal stuff. Um, but the things they queried is like, you know, the points where um, I broke the rules, kind of, you know, because that implies that the, <laughs> the staff are not playing the rules, which is so funny because, I mean, we were probably the most rule-abiding staff in that place. <laughs> And that book is The Prison Teacher. Link is below the video in the description box. And if we've piqued your interest in Natalie Welch's story, there's two podcasts with Natalie. There is Escape from Venezuela's Deadliest Prison Part 1. And there is also Part 2, which Mim was referencing about the truck hijacking. And Natalie's book is also available worldwide on Amazon now in all three formats, including audiobook. And it's called, surprise, surprise, Escape from Venezuela's deadliest prison as well. All right, so the next one then was Chaplaincy Prize. Oh, I think this was the story about um, this chaplaincy group that we used to run and just this, um, the kind of uh, 
the opportunities people took, you know, the, the vicar does this kind of like start off with, everyone bow your heads and pray. And that's the bit I'd always keep my head not bowed because everyone's like, right, the eyes are closed. Get the sugar packets in the bra. <laughs> and again, I just love like that, you know, whatever situation a human is in, people are going to re- be resourceful and people are going to just use that like human entrepreneurial resourceful kind of talented thing to connect with other people you know put the sugar in the bra use the prayer time look i'm sure they were praying to the lord but they're also (laughs) doing that with the sugar later (laughs) yeah church in arizona was like where everybody met to exchange contraband and get latest news from this building to that building and that kind of thing. Because it's across the wings, yeah. Yeah, and then I've I've sat on the back row with my co-defendant Wildman. He he died last year, um, but um, he was he, he was incapable of whispering, so he's on the back row telling me like you know what's going on, and he's like really loud, and then the the, the priest would stop the mass, and he'd be like. In the end days, revelations predicted there would be scoffers and mockers. And I can hear scoffers and mockers on the back row. And he'd walk up to Wildman and give him give him a lecture. Scoffers and mockers. Scoffers and mockers, yeah. It was um I actually loved the chapel within that space because I don't know if this is the same in the States, but it was like the only place without lino floor. <laughs> and the only place where you were allowed biscuits that weren't <laughs> the normal biscuits. And I kind of, I found that connecting in the classroom where you're, you know, it's the lino floor and the being patted down on the way in and the, you know, signing out everybody pencil. The kind of times where you re- had real kind of lots, so much human connection I found were in that chapel where you had a carpet and a proper biscuit and you were able to just sit with a cup of tea. And huge, you know, huge thank you to people working in these ministries who make the effort to get through all of the barriers of bureaucracy to get in there. Because in Arizona, they viewed all this as an inconvenience and a security risk. Why let these people, they would really try and keep them out. Um, Perhaps our favorite was Church on the Street with Pastor Walt and Hillbilly Ed and his little banjo. But every now and then they would bring this guy called Jumping Bill. Jumping, Jumping Bill. Bill. And he'd like he'd be doing these hymns with his guitar, he'd be like, holy dring, holy dring. And it would build and build, and he'd go, everybody jump. <laughs> and everybody just started pogoing in the whole room. The guards were like, ah, what is going on? IDs were flying out of people's pockets. Chairs were getting launched across the room. And it all calmed down. And then he, and Bill would like build it up again. He'd be like, jump, everybody, jump, everybody, jump. <laughs> It was like it was like it was it was like a punk rock concert. Do you know the thing I think it is? I think it is because the women in that prison were used to everybody being paid to be there, right? You're like either a paid guard or even if you're a kind of therapeutic staff member, you're paid to be there. And the chapel was the only place where everyone was volunteers, and I th- that just takes away a boundary in terms of people being. You know, it's not somebody's job to listen to you. Someone's listening to you out of the, the goodness of their heart. And I I mean, yeah, I think it was kind of able to be that different space because it's people weren't listening and being kind as a job. It was just this kind of voluntary thing. Because you're dehumanised and reduced to a number, aren't you? Yeah. I remember when I got released, when the, the van finally took me to the airplane and I walked up the stairs and there was like a cabin crew from London and they just talked to me like I was a person. And my heart was like, 
<sighs> I am a person again. <laughs> My heart was like melting because <laughs> after six years of just like being, you know, I was like, yeah, where's you down? Yeah, yeah. All right, so we had um, nicking, which means stealing sugar. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was the one in the chapter oh, I was talking was about, on, heads down, uh, yeah, getting yeah. your prayer on, getting the sachets away. And then prize? What were in here? Prize something? Don't know. <laughs> Not sure, I'm afraid. All right, let me go back to the main list then. So... All right, so how long were you working with the women before you started going over to the men's? Probably. So I was, it was secondment, so like two mm. weeks, a month at a time. Mm. So probably a year in the women's before I started going to the men's. A year in the women's. And did you request to go to the men's? No, no, they just were shorter on staff and so seconded people. Or if they had, there was loads of different creatives within our team. So it might have been somebody was like a painter, someone mm. else was a drummer, someone else was a rapper. And so whenever there was kind of poetry things, if there were some lads that wanted to do that, they'd draft me in for a few weeks here and there. Describe your first day going into the men's. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. So the the one of the big differences was, um, did it work the same in the States where some prisons are state and some are privatised or are they all privatised? Um, in America, yeah, like the county jail was state run. It was really run down. Um, and then they've slowly kind of moved a lot of it over to privatised right. over the years, the mass incarceration. So I would say, I don't know if this is universal, but my experience of those prisons is that the ones that were kind of state run... Mm were much better than the ones that were privately run. I guess it was kind of like a money-saving exercise. Two guards watching 200 prisoners to keep Some, the costs out, yeah. to maximise the profits. Exactly that, yeah. yeah. So do you know the, the biggest shock in the men's prison was almost how badly it was run? Mm. I mean, like, there was... Uh, I'm trying to work out if I'm allowed to tell this story because it mm. might identify a prison. There was a documentary on... Uh, a TV channel where uh, a guy, a journalist, had um, trained to be a prison guard and uh, worn a camera and filmed like two weeks in the place. In the UK? Yeah. Wow. And I remember going into the security department of that prison and saying, um, oh, gosh, you must have had a busy week. What, with the documentary? And the woman was like, the what? <laughs> Right. <laughs> so it was really like, I mean, yeah, kind of sat down thinking, that's a pretty big breach of security. I'm really surprised that that isn't common knowledge in your security department. And I think more than it being kind of so different because it was a men's prison, it felt really different because it was almost going from your little bistro to McDonald's. Because we were, so, you know, in in the female estate, of course, there are these massive systemic problems, but actually, it's much it's much smaller. There are much much fewer people spending the whole day in the cell. I mean, we talk about unemployment. It's it's obviously very different in the states because they're employed by kind of companies. But by employment, I mean like education or working in the kitchens or any of the kind of jobs around the prison. Most of the women were going out doing something in the day. Flip it over to the men's prison. Most of the men were not. 
And that is a massive change because in the women's system, most people had something to do in the day that was purposeful. And actually making it so most people didn't have anything to do today, there were so many more drug problems, big spice problem. Even like in the education department, people were smoking spice. And uh, yeah, it it definitely felt just a much less cared for environment. I, I mean, prisons are much bigger in the States, aren't they? So were they kind of similar to the McDonald's method? So in America now, it's like to maximise the profits, they were housed people. So I was in all the different security levels. But for them, like, ideally, they got these, like, massive, super-sized dorms now. Oh, wow. Where, no, we have nothing like that. <laughs> yeah. So America's all punishment. Like, the, the education you, you, you're you saying that you offered didn't exist. Nothing at all. There was some little things here and there. In the county jail, which was my first 26 months, there was hardly anything other than the religious services, and it was the first ten at the door to line up could go to that. There was like a just jostling and violence over that. Otherwise, you're stuck in a day room with a tiny little beat-up old TV bolted to the wall. They've got these octagonal silver tables bolted to the floor. They've got a telephone with a little cord so you can't hang yourself that people are arguing over who's going to go on it next. And then there's the, the, all the prisoners have sat according to their race. So it's all racially divided. So Arizona, it's whites, blacks, Mexicans, Mexican-Americans. So you can imagine, like, each gang has got certain hours of the TV control, but then it goes to the Mexicans who are watching something else in Spanish and there's fights over the TV and all this stuff. And yeah. It's just raw drug and gang-infested mayhem. The whole day revolves around getting the heroin in. You've got guards smuggling the drugs in. Approximately 90% shooting up, two-thirds of hepatitis C in some of the areas I was at from sharing dirty needles. And in the beginning, I was like, how does society round up mostly drug addict criminals and put them where there's more drugs than anywhere? Mm. This is crazy. Well, then I realized this is the status quo is maintained because there's so much money being made off, off warehousing human beings, turning them into commodities. So it's got... America seems to take many things to extremes. Yeah, that is extreme. One in 100 adults is in prison right now in America. And if you look at, you know, are these serial killers, pedophiles, murderers, rapists? No, they went after the lowest hanging fruit. At the peak of the war on drugs, the highest arrest category was weed possession. Almost a oh, million. Wow. Almost a million in arrests. In prison for weed possession? Yeah. I went to the Hemp Museum, because I've written a, a war on drugs series of books. I went to the Hemp Museum in Holland. And on a wall in the Hemp Museum... They've got um, the names and pictures of people in America who under three strikes laws are doing life sentences to this day for weed possession. Weed possession, not possession. even dealing. Dealers are harder to catch. How do you fill the prisons? Oh my days. Go after the lowest hanging fruit, the young people w w with drugs, the mentally ill. More than half of my friends in prison were soldiers. Wow. Come back from wars, PTSD, didn't get the tools to deal with it, got on street drugs, ended up in prison. So that opened my eyes to what the prison population really was because the media is like prisoners are serial killers, murderers, rapists on one side. And on the other side, they're like, yeah, it's easy. they got PlayStations, gourmet food. <laughs> yeah. So it keeps the public hating on the prison population. Mm. And my writing came about because I asked the guard, I said, look, 
how do you guys get away with all this? Dead rats in the food, you know, cockroaches all over us at night times. And a guard said, the world has no idea what's going on in here and the public doesn't give a shit about prisoners. So that's why I started to write things down. Yeah, yeah. 100%. And mm. we were saying before um, we started filming, actually so much of why I wrote Jailbirds and why I mentor female writers in prison and why I talk about prisons is because I think if people realise how badly, you know, even let's take it purely financially, which is not really my angle, but people's money is being used really, really badly. Yeah. It's not leading to less crime. It's really inhumane. If people knew what was going on, if people heard the stories, you know, there's this kind of slightly cheesy phrase that um, your enemy is someone whose story you've never heard. And actually, I feel like the prison campaigners I know are all people who have been in prison met people who've been in prison or worked in the system. What does that tell you? As soon as you know what's going on, it's complete given that we need to just scrap it and start again, redesign the thing in a common sense way. But if what you're kind of taking in about the prison system is, you know, what you read in the Daily Mail on a weekend, like... Of course, you're not going to think. Yeah. <laughs> of course, you're, you're going to think. Hey. Bring back the death penalty. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's such. Yeah, it's just rubbish, isn't it? So I'm a member of Leap. Have you heard of Leap? Mm-mm. So this is. It used to be called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, as in drug prohibition. I think it's called Law Enforcement Action Partnership now. But they say that they want the drug laws um, reversed. They say, look, the purpose of prisons and the police was to take person A out of society that's harming person B. So if you go back millennia, that's how crime has been defined, murder, robbery, rape, etc. Person A harms person B. But then to fill the prisons, the private prisons, the mass incarceration program, they went after low-level drug users. So if you arrest a young person with weed, who's that person harming? So they say the whole purpose of prisons has been subverted by the war on drugs, this for-profit thing. If we scrap all that, go back to prisons and the police, taking person A out of society that harms person B, the prisons would empty, and then you've got other campaigners saying drug addiction should be a mental health issue. You shouldn't be throwing all these people in the jail. No, I agree, yeah. Go in, you arrest a kid with weed, they go to prison where I was housed, they come out a heroin user... And they've got neo-Nazi tattoos and they've got a criminal record. How are they, I wonder if they're going to get a job. That's a client for life then for the prison system. Yeah. It's really sickening. 100%. Yeah, yeah. All right, so you then started to pay mind to write in a book. What planted the seeds for the book? Do you know, it was just kind of diarying. One of the things that we did with a lot of women was... Um, talking about self-expression and write down what's happening to you. And actually, I think part of the reason that we don't necessarily have change is because if you are in the middle of all of that kind of trauma and in a system which tells you you can't speak and can't make decisions, of 
course you're not going to get out and say, right, what do we need to do to change this? Let's get, who would you get in touch with? Like, people are really disempowered to seek change as well. Um, so, oh, where was I up to? <laughs> what was the question? What planted the seeds to write the book? You yeah, said you were diarying. Of course, yeah. So one of the things that we did is, is uh, yeah, got people journaling about their experiences, putting words to them, um, you know, sharing with other people how they were doing, looking at what language to, we can use to kind of I- I express how you are and where you've been. And uh, so that was a kind of practice I got into myself and, um, work gave me counselling uh, whilst I was working there. And so I got into this habit of of journaling and of writing it down. And yeah, some of that's just copied and pasted into the book, but it kind of started there. Wow. And you have managed to get it optioned for a drama series by BBC Studios. Yeah. It's Congratulations. Really days, that's but... exciting, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But And that's been amazing again for um, the team who have optioned that of, of yeah, been up to to where we are in the northeastern of of met some of the women uh, that were in the book and um, helped with writing it and uh, yeah that's just been such a uh, an amazing <laughs> thing that I really hope will turn into a real a real drama series where I hope that we will see on our TVs um, what actually happens in prison I hope so as well everyone's telling me to watch this drama series Time with Sean oh, everyone's Bean. telling me that as well have you not watched apparently it yet? it's really good no I've not seen it no I'm, I'm interested to see it but... yeah definitely alright so how long did you work in the prisons for and why did you stop so I was there for two years full time and then stayed on kind of doing you know two weeks here and cover there and the reason I moved on is because bef- right up until you know, I was talking a little bit about the um, the food waste project we yeah, ran. Yeah. So, alongside that journey of living in that community house, we um, started a community business which was taking food that would otherwise go to waste and running these kind of pop up community meals. And mm. I've been doing that alongside work for those years that I worked in the prison unit. You know, that's where the uh, the smuggled lake got up to. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, after those two years, we bought a building and well no not bought a building we rented a building and a, a warehouse and started kind of making that up and actually it kind of grew to a side where it couldn't be my side project anymore wow um, well done yeah thanks but actually that's kind of been um that those relationships we put up in the prison have been a really amazing opportunity to uh, run employability and, and training stuff in that cafe so we have um women and men that come through probation services and who um, I know from that time in prison who are, are training with us and um, then finding employment in our catering company, um, Conscious Kitchen. Uh, <laughs> if you have an event in the northeast, you want catering. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, my experience is always that uh, somebody coming from a background of having been to prison makes a brilliant employee because they're willing to work really, really hard to kind of prove that they deserve that job and yeah to anybody who's kind of <laughs> sees that on a cv and thinks oh we'll put it at the bottom of the pile definitely don't and that's a recurring theme of our guests that they can't get jobs so that's a huge thing that you know what you've done has grown to the point where you're now able to train people with convictions and addiction issues and mental health issues to um, go gain employment, including in your own catering company. 
Yeah. Conscious. Conscious Kitchen. So it's part of, yeah, Refuse, which is uh, based in Chesley Street near County Durham. And we also um, partner with a really another amazing organisation called Handcrafted. And um, I uh, run the women's work with them. And uh, again, that started with kind of training, supporting people to find community. So the training is everything from woodwork to bike maintenance to Mm -hmm. catering. Uh, And then people come and train with us in a day and are given uh, housing. And lots of this kind of supported housing people go into after they come out of prison, you get a kind of, you're allocated your six months of it and then <laughs> at the end you boot it out. So, um, yeah, it's a really cool model of housing we're doing with Handcrafted where people can kind of make that space home and paint the walls a different colour and go to the wood workshop and make furniture for it. And, yeah, again, not rocket science, <laughs> giving people a sense of home and place and community means that we just yeah have have much much fewer people going back in so you were working with a woman who you helped us to start a business oh this is one of my favorite people (laughs) (laughs) yeah again this is a completely irrelevant you're you're coming to us from the states but um yeah this is uh one of the people that i taught in prison and we do some support for people starting up their businesses and uh They've now started up a business which has just grown and grown and grown and uh, does kind of healthy meal preps that are delivered to your door. So people kind of on fitness plans and does <laughs> training. And again, it's just this kind of thing uh, that we, you, t- you were saying when people are in prison, there's so much wasted talent. And actually, my experience is that some of the most amazing, inspiring, hardworking, credible women I've ever met are serving sentences. And um, yeah, Lee's one of those people who has come out and just achieved massive things and is looking behind mm. her and getting jobs for other women wow. who are from that background in her company. And uh, yeah, it's just such an example of how much wasted talent there is. Definitely. And you also link up published writers and people you know from publishing with female writers in prison, which is something that the uh, mentorship scheme does with the Kersler Trust. So how active are you with that project? Yeah, so this is, um, I'm reluctant to call this a project because, um, <laughs> so this came from when I first started writing, I got in touch with an, an editor from a big magazine and said, I'm new to this. I wonder if you would give me some pointers. And she was amazing. She kind of invited me into conversations, introduced me to people, like told me how the ropes worked. And I was thinking, this is such a normal thing for me to have done. You know, she's done this before. People have asked her it before. People like me who know that that's the kind of thing you're allowed to do have got in touch with her. But actually so many of the women that I knew who were writers in prison just didn't have these roots in to publishing. And so I thought, oh, we could have another project and Cursor do an amazing mentoring scheme. It's the one that you're on. But actually, maybe it could also just be like I did, finding someone I admire and asking them. And maybe it doesn't have to be a project. And so I've kind of put a call out on Twitter and got like a 100... And I said, only get in touch if you are able to provide routes into publishing, you've published your own work yourself, that you've kind of, you're in the industry, you know, not a kind of um, diary writer in a book club kind of thing. <laughs> and we had a hundred people, including these like, oh amazing, goodness. yeah, like editors of big magazines wow. and like people who publish books and books. 
um, who offered their time. And so, yeah, using kind of some connections for people who are reading my book in book clubs in prisons or some, uh, I wrote for the Inside Times, which is like an in-prison newspaper, um, asking if people were interested in that or the Women in Prison magazine. And yeah, started getting letters and letters and letters from people saying, I really want to tell my story. And I don't know how, and was able to kind of, um, yeah, like in such a low effort way, just be like, well, here's another person who does. And because we had this like amazing pool of people who were up for doing it, I could say, okay, well, do you want a fiction writer, a poet, a screenplay person? <laughs> and those people, yeah, have, have then kind of just gone on to form relationships, writing yeah. in and out of prison and emailing people get out. So well, if anyone cool. want to tell the story in a, on a podcast, yeah, I'll send, send them away. <laughs> oh, I've got a list. And um, all right, so that helped you build bridges with the publishing industry, and um, you saw some inefficiencies there, did you, in the publishing industry? Um, I don't know, much less so than uh, much less so than the prison system. Oh, the prison system. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, the. Uh, I mean, yeah, publishing was pretty pretty speedy compared to some of the um, prison systems definitely so you're one of our smiliest guests it seems to me like you've got this passion and you're able to do what you want to do like you know all these people stuck in the rat race and they all look depressed it sounds to me like you're you're a woman on a mission your heart is in the right place and you're absolutely glowing with um Happiness and positive energy. Oh, thanks very much. I'll take that. No, I think I I think I know how lucky and privileged and blessed I am to be able to do the things I love and it doesn't make sense not to kind of help people. Because when you interact with people who've been well. through trauma, it's a yardstick then, isn't it? You think how lucky I am to have this life that I've took for granted versus gone through the horrors of what these people have gone through. And you just feel, you know, um, that so many people complain about little things, but there's far worse, you know, worse things going on in the world. Yeah. I think hardship is a good educator. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I kind of think, um, I don't know, that it also being in a position where you get to do something you love and I'm not panicking about how I'm going to pay the bills this month and I'm not panicking about my safety and I'm not at risk, then actually, like, I'm so, so blessed. And there's a responsibility there as well to kind of, I don't know. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, I make a lot of mistakes a lot of the time. And I think definitely we all do. trying to, you know, it's, yeah, I, I hope my heart is in the right place, but like, my God, I definitely get it wrong a lot too. But, um, yeah, I guess I'm a big fan of trying. <laughs> go, even if you balls it up. <laughs> so what would you like to say in conclusion to the people watching this video? Ah, oh, well, <laughs> thank you for watching. Uh, if you want to have a read of Jailbirds or uh, the paperback, I beg your pardon, is called um, The Prison Teacher, then um, you can pick it up online in hardback paperback or an audiobook. Who narrated or an it? Ebook. Me. Whoa! <laughs> if you I want know. more of Mim's voice, 
it was a proud moment actually. Although, oh, it's, um, it's not an easy thing to do to make a book. I did one of mine and I was like regretting it. <laughs> I partly did. At the time, I absolutely loved it because I had my childhood dream to be a Blue Peter presenter. I felt really like this is my new dream and I loved doing it. I like practice all yeah. the accents online and stuff. But then um, somebody left me a review on Audible which yeah. said something like, are you, do you, are you a person who picks out the bad reviews and then sits and dwells on them all day? Because I definitely am. Everyone says, don't read them. And I'm like, well, I only read the bad ones. I just seek out the one stars. Um, no, somebody left me a review saying, um, great book, shame about her annoying voice. <laughs> and I've thought about it for days since. So I might not take it up as a career, but I really enjoyed doing it. I think one of my audiobook reviews started with, this is what happens when an author thinks he can narrate his own book. <laughs> Guys, so cutting. My, honestly, my absolute worst book review ever was um, one line, it was okay. <laughs> like, well, don't say anything if it was okay. <laughs> All right, so I'm sure people who've watched this will want to reach out to you and follow you on your socials then. So what socials are you on? Um... All of them. Do you have a YouTube channel? <laughs> um, oh, no, that's the only one I don't have. So I am uh, on Twitter and Instagram as at Mim Skinner, M-I-M-S-K-I-N-E-R. Uh, what else is there? Twitter and Instagram, really. Oh, and if you're interested um, in all of those other projects I mentioned, then those handles will be on my Mim Skinner Twitter and Instagram. So all of Mim's links will be in the description box below the video. We'll put a universal link in for her book. So wherever you are in the world, it will take you to the nearest Amazon. And let us know in the comments what you thought about this. Um, do not put anything critical about Mim's voice or her audiobook. You will be in trouble. Uh, huge thank you for following and supporting the channel. Huge thank you to the new subscribers. Subscription logo is down there. And most of all, thanks to Mim's for coming along today and filling this room with her positive energy. And we usually end with a hug, but because of the social distancing, it's all spreading right now. We're just going to end right here. So thank you very much for coming oh, on. Thank Cheers. you really so much for having it. me. You're welcome. What a lovely Cheers. afternoon. Yes, thanks.